and welcome to the Nosy Fox Podcast with me, Natasha Murta. Each episode will be an interview with someone that I find interesting and has a story to tell that I believe is worth sharing. Some of the people I'll be talking to are people that I know, but some are strangers that for one reason or another, I wanted to get to know. This is a podcast about people and storytelling, two of my favorite things. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy. My guest this week on the Nosy Fox podcast is 29-year-old professional MotoGP photographer Cormac Ryan Meenan. Cormac finished school in 2010 and went straight into working for his dad, rather than going to college like most of us tend to do. In 2012, Cormac went to his first MotoGP pre-season test in Spain and became fascinated with the sport. In 2013, he bought his first second-hand camera from somebody online and started teaching himself how to use it and edit his own photographs. Today, Cormac can usually be found at the side of the track of most GP races all around the world, photographing top drivers and top cars in the game. After years of trial and error, learning and growing, Cormac is a real example of if you want it enough, you can make it happen. Cormac, you are very welcome on the Nosy Fox podcast. and Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Cormac, you've had the most incredible nine years leading up to where you are today, but I'd like to start by asking you to explain what exactly MotoGP is, because I think a lot of people in Ireland don't know what it is. That also could just be me. MotoGP is basically the, the motorcycle equivalent of Formula One. That's that's basically what it is. Like the fastest motorbikes, the fastest riders on the best racetracks in the world. Like this year's twenty between nineteen and twenty one races a year. This year there's twenty. Um all around the world. And where is it most popular and biggest? It's Spain and Italy. It's bigger than football in Spain, like audi- per audience viewing figures for sports. It's it's the biggest um I mean it was in twenty nineteen. That's the last time I saw the numbers. It's bigger than football in Spain. So yeah, it's massive in Spain. Uh, and also massive in Italy. So like mainland Europe is quite big. Here, not so much. I mean, there's definitely like a small niche, hardcore fan base here, but it's not a mainstream. It's definitely not a mainstream sport. I'm sure your calendar is fairly hectic and I know it's a lot of moving around. So I assume each day is very different. But can you give me a rough idea of what a normal working day is for you? Yeah, so I, like it's a race. We, I mean, it's a weekend. It's very similar to Formula One Wednesday. For me, Wednesday is travel day. Thursday is what's called media day, so it's like for the riders that race, it's like interviews, PR stuff, blah, 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 at the track. Friday is practice, Saturday is qualifying, Sunday is race. And Monday is a travel day to come either back home or to the next race. And on race day, you're just photographing everything? Yes, well, from Thursday to Sunday, it's like I have to be there. Like the whole point is to, to document the weekend as like an... So into like an archive basically so there's like a, a historical I don't know folder of that weekend for but for each weekend and there's three classes similar to Formula 1 in, in what it should be there's Moto3 which is single cylinder 250 bikes for like there it, there is an age limit of 30 in Moto3 but like it's primarily like 16, 17, 18, 19 year olds and the lightweight class is Moto2 which is Triumph 7 something I can't remember it CC um, and again, it's like it can be seventeen to like twenty five, but it can go to old, you can be older. And then MotoGP is thousand cc, the fastest bikes in the world with the best riders in the world. 
uh, yeah, and that's basically like a weekend is like, like I said, Friday practice, Saturday qualifying, Sunday race. Races are 40 minutes long. Uh, Moto 3 is in the morning. Well, they're all in the morning. Moto 3 is at generally 11 in Europe. Moto 2 is at 20 past 12 and Moto 2 is at 2. And I want to go back to before where you are now. Was it that you, after school, you just didn't want to go to college? Not that I didn't want to go to college. I didn't know what I wanted to do. But honestly, I remember being in sixth year in school and being like, you know, you go and see these guidance counselors and you ask, they ask, what do you want to do? And you're like, oh, I want to do this. And they're like, mm, I don't think you should do that. I think you should be a doctor. I'm like, okay, but well, I'm not going to do that. And then I never, I remember in sixth year, I never understood how the CAO worked. And I still don't understand how the CAO I haven't got a clue. I actually came across my CAO form the other day and it was like, I still don't know what I was looking at. And I was like, I have no idea what I want to do. So I didn't do anything. I was like, sweet, this seems good. So did you just finish the Leaving Cert and that was it? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd put like business studies somewhere. I don't even know where. Accidentally. Because I didn't know how I was filling in this form. And like, I remember thinking, yeah, sweet, if I get that, that's cool. But obviously I didn't because I got minimal interest in doing my exams properly. I don't even know how many points I got. I don't know how many I needed. I ain't got a clue. But I, I was never particularly concerned. I never saw it as like... I always saw it as something that was just in the way. Like I had no plan. I had no... I, just, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I wasn't concerned by not having something to do. It didn't bother me. I was like... So you are saying you saw it as something that was in the way, but you didn't know what you wanted to do. So what was it in the way of? I felt that like it was... If, if you, you were being like pushed down this funnel... And it was like the more I was pushed into the funnel, the less I wanted to do it. And as it got closer and closer to, to being pushed down that funnel, I was like, no, I'm, I'm good. And I, I, no, I don't want to say I resisted. I, it was more that I didn't understand how to fill in the form. But I was never concerned that I didn't fill in the form or didn't know what I wanted to do. I was like, it, it'll work out with no plan or no, no idea what I wanted to do. No idea where I was going to end up or how I was going to do anything. And everybody around me was going to college. And part of me was like, should I try and go just to go? And I was like, no, I, I knew I didn't want to do that. And how did your parents respond to your attitude on this? Um, I mean, I think they knew I was never particularly... I'm going to say I wasn't academic. I like, I liked and I like learning things. It's quite interesting. I like learning stuff, but I don't like being forced to learn stuff. Because I know it's like a really like teenage thing to say, but it's like... I hated the idea of being told you have to learn this. I was like, I want to learn the stuff I want to learn, like that I'm interested in. I think they got that. I'm sure they were fearful at the time. I was probably just young and didn't really see it. Anyway, you know, I'm not going to look at my parents and go, you're scared for my future. I didn't know. I didn't care. I, I don't know how they felt, to be honest. I should probably ask. Like, I don't know. I'm sure if I was in their shoes, I'd be slightly concerned. I think my dad always just presumed I'd work with him. And that's what you did do, right? You finished school and went to work with your dad. Sort of. I finished in 2010, I think. And in 2011, I did nothing. I think at the very end of 2011, I worked like two days a week with him. And doing what exactly? In his warehouse, like driving fork trucks and like stacking pallets and stuff like that. And it wasn't bad. Like it was fine. It was something to do and it gave me money and I was like, cool. But it was never something that I was like, whoa, can't wait to go there. It just didn't suit me. It's not that it's wrong. It's not that it's bad. It's not that there isn't even a path there. There definitely was. I just didn't... Again, it was that thing that I was like presumed that I should do that. So I was like, I don't really want to do that. But with no secondary plan. And 
at this point in your life, had you got into photography yet? Um, I remember it's like probably when I was twelve, maybe eleven, and my dad had this like tiny little digital camera, and and I remember like taking pictures with it. And now when I look back, that was probably like the time where it was like the something clicked in my head. I just didn't realize it at the time. I didn't do anything with it. I didn't. And he was into photography as like a younger person. Um, but I never really, it never clicked with me that I might also like that. Because he never did anything with it. It was just like a pastime. Um, that was probably the first time I was like, this is quite fun. But lots of things are quite fun. So it didn't register with me. It didn't. I didn't think, whoa, I really need to do this. Like it was just another thing I was doing as a 12, 13, 14 year old. And Cormac, in 2012, you went to your first MotoGP race or the way that MotoGP works is that in so it finishes in November and then November the end of November December January and February there's nothing it's that's winter but before the season starts there was pre-season tests in 2012 the first pre-season test was in Spain that's unusual now most of the time it's in Malaysia because the weather's better in January end of January February so but I went to this test in 2012 as a fan because I had nothing to do you know I had this money that I was kind of saving working with my dad it wasn't that expensive to fly to Spain in, in March or late March maybe and how much would one of these tickets cost to go as a fan I think I, it was like a test so there was no fans there was no, was no race it was literally just a test it was you know the track opened at 9 and closed at 6 and they rode around testing new parts and new bikes and whatever um, I, I, honestly I can't remember it was like maybe three or four hundred euro all in like for my hotel for my flight for my ticket okay so that's not a huge amount of money but for someone that's only working a couple of days a week for their dad that would have been a significant amount to shell out um, it it must have been more than just something to do or a hobby you obviously had a huge interest in uh, racing and motorbikes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when when I was in school, I mean, as a young young kid, like six seven, I was massively into Formula One. That was like, I loved it. And then in like two thousand and two, two thousand three, so I'd been ten or eleven. I found found MotoGP, and I was like, "Whoa, this is really good." It's like, it's just clicked with me. I just did. I liked it a lot. And then from two thousand and four on, I never missed anything. Every race I watched. Every session, every practice session, every qualifying session, everything. I never missed one. My whole life would revolve around where I would need to be to make sure I saw the race. And not even the race, like the second practice session on a Friday. Who cares? I did. I was like, I have to go home. And what was it that you loved about it? I liked I liked how fast it was. I like speed. I'm naturally drawn to like speed. I'm naturally drawn to like things that are slightly dangerous. Um but I also liked how I, I like things that when somebody is exceptionally good at anything, I think that's like fascinating. It doesn't matter what it is, and like just how good they are. And it's not necessarily just how good at riding a bike; it's how good they are at like like working things out. Like it's just, all, all any form of racing is is just solving problems really quickly. And I was like massively intrigued by how well they're able to solve such complex problems at unbelievable speed. So you have like a problem presented to you, you then find the solution and then implement the solution. I thought this was amazing. 
and, and at the time it was like when I was starting to ride a bike I mean I've, I've been riding a bike for like five or six years at that stage but it was a time where I was like maybe I could get involved in this maybe I could like used to watch it and think I can do that I mean I know I know now you can't it's like when you watch anything that's, when you watch anybody who's really good at something you think well, I can do that and then you actually go to do it and you're like actually quite difficult but I was like but I was pretty good and I was like and I liked the idea of like not giving up until I was as good as this person that was what like I really liked and then I just really liked the, the racing I liked I just liked the speed I liked the aggression I liked so 2012 was the first paid race that you went to in Qatar yes so the test was in Jerez and then like three so in, at Jerez I met the actual the tour operator I went with um they they do they went to all the races and I was like so 2012 I would have been 20 so I just gone to I just turned 20 and I was like I'm I met the owner of this company and I was like yeah I can take pictures I definitely couldn't take pictures but and he was like oh we're kind of like interested in doing like we're looking for someone to do this and I was like I can definitely do that I definitely couldn't do that but in my brain I was like just say you can and then work it out after so he's like okay so I went to Qatar like three or four weeks later and Qatar is a night race which is like now I know like photographing night races and day races are extremely different things I went to Qatar and I remember being so out of my depth and being like I have no idea what I'm doing and did you have your own camera no I borrowed my dad's camera but did you not need to take photos in the nighttime? no I didn't know a lot I, I was I remember thinking I remember thinking sink or swim and I was like well I'll swim like I just had this I, it was similar it reminded me when I left school when we finished when I finished school that like I had no plan but I knew it would work and I was like I had that same blind faith with no evidence to support my faith I was like yeah of course I'd be able to do this why wouldn't I be able to do this and I mean I was okay it wasn't like now when I look back I mean I'm like that was risky but it worked and it was kind of like fake it till you make it and then and Qatar is the only night race so then after that every other race in the daytime I was like well that's at least one good thing but the other bigger problem was that I was going to these races that I'd watched for like the preceding 16 years and like the first time you go to anything like that you're mesmerised you're like captivated by the people and by the, the tracks that you've seen on TV and the places that you've seen on TV and you kind of forget what you're supposed to be doing and I was like working with this company, but not with this company. I was still freelance. It was still just me. I was still paying to go to the races. My dad was helping me big time. Um, and like, I had no plan. I had no nothing. And I remember being like, so I was 20. So at that time, you couldn't rent cars in Europe at 20. They just wouldn't do it. So I'd have to find out how to get to airports. I'd have to find out how to get from airport to hotel. I'd have to find out how to get from the hotel to track, tracks to hotel. I mean, again, looking back now, I think, how did I... Would I do it again? Probably not. But I'm glad I did it then. And like, that was... 2012 was... I remember getting to the end of that year and thinking, I'm good. Don't want to do that. You spent so much time alone. You touched on this earlier and I wanted to ask you about it in more detail. Can you talk a little bit about the amount of time that you spent alone throughout this period? Yeah, because you... you, you, you like, so I'm 20 and I think in 2012 I went to like nine or ten races and I didn't know anybody like I had no idea who anybody was I had I didn't know anybody and like you're thinking what am I doing here like 
you're not that sure you're any good at what you're supposed to be doing. You're not really making any money at all. You're away from home. You're young. Everybody around you is like in college or having fun or you think, what am I doing? And it was, I remember getting to the end of the year and just thinking, no, if I don't do this again, I'm fine. Okay. So Cormac, continue on from when you stopped working with your dad in 2014. Then what? At the end, yeah, so I continued 2012, 2013 with him. And then at the end of 2013, I was like, okay. At the end of 2012, at the beginning, so the end of 2012, I said, no, I don't want to do this. Then a few months passed. Came to February, I was like, hmm. Kind of forgot about the bad bits. I was like, oh, I'll try it. 2013 was better. And then 14 was like better again. And then it became too much that I was like going home and then trying to work like two days a week. It just doesn't sound that much. But like, like I said, if you travel on a Wednesday and you come back on a Monday, it doesn't leave much time. Um, and it was quite stressful. I, mean, I, I didn't realize at the time how stressful it was. But now when I look back, I know how stressful it was. Um, and I know that that was like weighing on me. I didn't know at the time. I didn't know why I felt so tired or why I felt so like, she's 22 or whatever. Like, why am I tired? Uh, but now I know. So I stopped working with him in 2012. And then that was like, that stopped my money basically. And I was like, oh, shit. So then I tried to try and actively, like, sell pictures. And that was the first time I was like, okay, I need to try and, like, sell myself to people or... And that kind of worked. I remember selling, like, pictures and being like, well, people are actually buying, like, they're giving me money. Okay, but what I'm trying to understand here is how you got from the point of, I don't know how to use a camera, I don't even have my own camera, but I'm going to bluff my way in here... Yeah. To then being able to sell your photos for a lot of money. I literally learned from just making mistakes over and over and over again. And then be like, okay, if I do this, this happens. If I do this, this happens. When I do that, that happens. And there's a lot of times when I look back at my pictures now and I look at like the picture and then I look at the data of the picture and like I know exactly what I was doing wrong at the time, but I had no idea at the time what I was doing wrong. And it was just trial and error. Just like that's a bit rubbish that's better that's rubbish that's better and then in 2013 started 2013 i bought a second-hand camera from a guy um i don't know if he was i think he was just some wealthy guy in um near um killing carrick and he was like selling these cameras that my dad knew and it was like a lot of cameras it was like 30 40 grand worth of camera stuff so we went up and it was in the back of this like container and it was like basically just pick and choose what you wanted so i bought like relatively good but relatively basic stuff for 2013 so i had my own stuff for 2013 and then at the end of 2013 at the end of 2013 i was like oh, i need this lens and this and whatever so my dad bought this lens for me and that was kind of the last thing that he kind of camera wise paid for and then after that was when I was like, okay, we'll have to start actually using this kit now. Uh, and I was like, in the, in the short of it is how I went from not having a camera to it was just trial and error, just like make the same mistake over and over and over again until it clicked. And I was like, okay, when I do that, that happens. So don't do that. I, I always thought that like, oh, I think that like photography is one of these weird things that most people think they can do because they have camera phones. Be like, sure, sure, I can take a picture sure in the same way you can write by using a pen but it doesn't make you a writer you know, it's not like they're different things they're not the same thing and I don't believe that if someone is naturally artistic whether it's like drawing or photography that you can be taught it I feel like if somebody is, it can paint they'll paint 
it will come out you, you know but all these rules that you need to follow it's like nonsense like it's just do what you want to do don't worry if, oh, sometimes I think the less rules you know with artistic stuff the better you become with it because you're not limited by what you think is right you're just like well I'll do this because this is cool and like that was me I didn't have any I didn't go to college for it so I was like I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing so I'll do this and I never had anybody say that's wrong and if they did I was like well you're wrong like because <laughs> I had no no like I didn't know so it was like just trial and error over and over make the mistake learn make the mistake learn that's still now though that's how, still how I feel now it hasn't really changed I mean I, it, I know it's different now but I still feel like I make mistakes and I see other people doing stuff and I'm like why are you doing that and I don't know why but that's fine I'm, I'm, I, I'm fine with that I don't think that will ever stop but I'm, I'm kind of glad I never went to like college for an art because it stopped me getting stuck in that kind of oh shit I need to do this I don't know if it's right or wrong I definitely understand what you're saying and I can relate to it in my own sort of personal way. Um, when we went into level five back in November of 2020, I really thought I was going to lose my mind. And my mum has this um, shed in the garden where she paints. She's a she's an artist and she uses oil paints on canvas. And I'd never really done it before but I had more time on my hands than usual. And to basically keep myself from going insane, I started painting and I absolutely loved it. Really, really enjoyed it. Didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know how complicated working with oil paints can be. It's not as simple as, you know, mixing a little bit of white with this color and it makes it brighter. You know, you can mix a bit of yellow with something and all of a sudden you've got brown um but I sort of figured it out and I was working away with the the way that I knew and I got asked to paint um a, a portrait and I had never done portraits before or or humans before it was always landscape or abstract and stuff from my head and the minute I tried to educate myself on how to do a oil on canvas portrait painting I got so frustrated and it all became so complicated all of a sudden and it was actually my brother um, that said to me once when I was trying to do a commission and I was getting frustrated he said stop trying so hard to go by the by the rules and paint exactly what you're looking at in the image just you know paint what you're feeling or paint whatever you think uh works and you know I got there in the end so I definitely understand what you're saying yeah I think that I think that people who uh, don't get me wrong there's still people that are just completely useless at it and like sometimes the best thing you can do is tell them that they're useless at it but there's also people who will flourish and like yeah, I always think like no matter in whatever you do like the best will always come through eventually it might take a while but I just think being stuck with rules is not necessarily a good thing like because you, you just you get stuck so after all of these trial and error years and you felt like you were really getting somewhere and you were confident in your photography skills you then started being approached by a lot of companies 
and you were asked to be ambassadors and reps for for different brands talk to me about that yeah i feel like 2012 13 14 15 was like the boom of instagram the boom of twitter it was like the the first time that it was, it was not the first time it was like the period where it really started to grow and like i was in that i was like enjoying that i enjoyed twitter i enjoyed instagram i enjoy both of them um and like my 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 following is relatively small but it was growing like it was like 200 and 400 and 600 thousand 2000 yeah and now between twitter and instagram you have over thirty five thousand followers yeah which is cool and then and i i used facebook a lot like facebook pages which ironically was is still my biggest following but i stopped using it because like facebook were like oh if you pay us this we'll advertise this and i was like i don't want to pay you but anyway because of like you know having like it was relatively small, but then then I started to have like people contact me. It's quite a novel thing. You're like, why are you coming? To, like, you coming to me? Yeah, and and like, yeah, well, like, would you like to be an ambassador for this, or would you like to to be paid to do this? Or and I'm like, yeah, like obviously. When you have to play it cool, you're like, eh, you know, well, I'll think about it. And in your head, like, I'm definitely doing that. But I needed to be like, play it cool. Um. Yeah, that was like, a, I mean, it's still a novel thing when that happens. And what exactly does it mean to be an ambassador for a company? I know that you're an ambassador for Sony and for Oakley's. Yeah, at the time, at the time it was, it, so Danny's and AGV are like a, an Italian company who who are basically, they specialize in protective clothing. They they started in motorbikes, but they evolved into equestrian, mountain bikes, skiing, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, would you like to be an ambassador for us? And I had always bought their stuff as when I was learning to ride on the road. And I was like, yeah, like, of course. I mean, and it was basically the first contract I ever got was like, you, we will give you X amount of stuff. We will, you know, you can't wear uh, this brand or that brand. You have to wear this. And if you go here, we probably do this. And that was the first time I'd like then started to be like, it was an opportunity. And it was also like restricting me. But at the same time, I was like, I'm not going to say no, because I was getting free clothes, I was getting free helmets, I was getting free leathers, I was whatever I wanted, I just asked for. And they would arrive two or three weeks later. Just saving me a fortune. Um, so that was quite cool. And they, I'm still, I still do stuff with them, which is good. But it was like the first time I thought, maybe I can like actually, like it was slowly starting to click that like I could do this. As a career. Yeah, as I don't even think that I thought of it as a career. I still don't really think of it as a career. I still can't. I still feel like I'm getting away with something. Like I feel like it's like has to be a joke because it's so good sometimes that I'm like. But yeah, that I was like, maybe I can make something of this. But again, not really with a long term plan. Like I still don't know what I want to do in ten years time. But it was enough for me to be like, okay, you should probably pay attention. Like, what was the first big? break that you got i remember in 2015 there there's like so in, the way motor be is structured is slightly different to formula one formula one you'll have like mercedes ferrari whatever as like factory teams and that means that you'll have like the factory of mercedes supports the mercedes team so it is directly linked to mercedes and that is also the case in motor gb so you've got yamaha honda ducati etc so they're factory teams the factory like honda japan directly supports Honda, Honda's MotoGP team but underneath that you have what are known as satellite teams or they will buy the parts from Honda to run as a team and it evolved as a thing of like customer teams they were basically like we will pay to, to whatever a year to run four bikes with two riders 
um, and, and as since then it's kind of evolved into like I think and it's similar in Formula One that the factories have realised that okay well, instead of having two bikes around we can have four bikes so they started to put more money into these customer teams and one of the customer teams that still uses Honda was like I, I met the boss I think it was like maybe eight grand or ten grand they were offering me but this was like eight or ten grand for one to give pictures to one team and I was like this is dreamy like you know in 2015 I was whatever 23 or 4 sorry 8 to 10 grand to give a set of pictures to yeah yeah to, to, for this team and I was like cool I was like like it's it's quite a difficult thing that when you're when you're especially when you're younger and even now the the concept of money with like big companies is completely different to one individual so when they offer you money it can seem enormous to you you know five or ten grand is massive but to them it's nothing but you need to act like it's also nothing to you it's, it's you need to act like it's also nothing to you to to kind of like show your value because if you jump at everything you're offered you'll always just accept your first offer which generally is not the best offer or what you deserve because if someone believes they can get you for two grand they will if you know if they think they that they can only get you for six then they'll give you six instead of two but if you take the two then the next time someone comes to you they'll only offer you two um so when they first offered me money i was like Okay, yeah, this is pretty cool because it was like it wasn't like a in a team in Moto Two or Moto Three. It was like a, a, a actual Moto GP team, and I was like, okay. And that was like the first time I thought, not the first time I thought, it was like the first time that I was doing something directly linked to Moto GP. Before that, it was just brands that were in that were like sponsors or partners. This was like an actual brand that was racing in Moto GP. That I was like, yeah, I'll, I can do that. And then they helped me with like food. Another thing I didn't have when I was younger, you go to races and where do I get food? Like, you know, and it costs a fortune food, you know. You've got our breakfast, lunch, and dinner for five days a week, eating out, that quickly adds up to be pretty expensive. And, like, in that deal was food. And I was like, cool. And then that, uh, that relationship is still going, which is cool. But that was the first time in my where I was like, I'm actually getting paid properly and consistently to do something. It wasn't like, I might get paid 500 quid to do this or I may get paid 100 euros to do this. It was like l- legit money. Like when you're 23, I mean, when you're 29 and someone offers you five grand, you say, yes, please. Like, you know, you have to, you're not going to say no, it's a lot of money. But it was the first time I'd been like offered proper. Yes, because I'd say with what you are doing, well, now it might not be as big of a concern, but at the time you wanted to be stable you wanted some kind of security and consistency which is is very difficult for any kind of art it's the the nature of it is that it's random and sporadic and and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad and like i never had consistent income because i never really had like it okay i worked on my dad but it was like two days a week and it was like consistent but it was minimal but it was fine because i didn't have any expenses but then when you start going to races like to do an entire season massively expensive especially if you do all the races yeah so talk to me about the logistics of your job and the travel i mean how many flights were you on last year last year i not as many as normally but i think it was like 40 or 50 which is quite a lot for a pandemic okay and so what are your expenses you you have to pay for your own flights 
your hotel what else hotel so generally a race weekend is like three main categories hotel well flights hotel rental car because you have to get around when you're there yeah and then food as i've been, you know grown up it's like and i have bigger contracts food's not so much an issue anymore but hotels rental cars and flights are still an issue yeah, so obviously if you do 20 races and maybe two or three tests that's 23 events in 52 weeks but everywhere in a normal year obviously not now it's relatively condensed but like like i said a pre-season test is in malaysia and the second one is in qatar the first race is in Qatar, and the second race is in Austin, and the third race is in Argentina. And that's a lot of like logistically trying to work out where you need to be, what's the the, the best of value, maybe not necessarily the cheapest, but like the best of value way to get somewhere. Do I go home? Like, do I go home after Austin? Or do I go straight to Argentina? If I go to Argentina, what do I do in Argentina? Where do I stay? How do I get from Buenos Aires to where we need to go? Etc. So... Over a whole year, the cost of it is high, more than thirty grand. And so that's like that's just to do your job. So that's like you know, I, I, there's two ways of looking at it. It's like you can look at it in the sense that it costs thirty grand to go to work, or you can look at it as if like if you owned a shop, your expenses might be thirty grand in a year. It's similar-ish, but it just depends on where you want to look at it. But generally, I look at it as as it costs me thirty grand to go to work because I don't have a shop. <laughs> So you need to pay that. Sure, you can do it for less, but when you travel a lot, the biggest thing I've learned is that don't skimp on hotels. Like, if you really want to save money, just pay for cheap flights, like the, the shittest route you can find or whatever. I still don't do that, but if one thing is just hotels, because when you get to where you want to go, no matter how tired you are, if your hotel is nice, you're generally going to be happy. You'd be safe, your food, etc. Um, so, like, 30-ish sometimes it can be slightly less sometimes more but like that's roughly what it costs and with so much moving around do you still feel like Greystones in County Wicklow in Ireland is your home yeah I think it's a weird thing that when I was when I started doing this travel was such an enormous thing it was such a big deal to me it was so daunting and it was so scary and it was so like I said lonely and as I got older and I got more used to it, it became, I don't know where I was, I don't know what age I was, but I remember having this like epiphany that I was like, I can go home. It doesn't matter where I am. Like, within a day you can be home. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. There is nowhere in the world you can be that it can take you if you really want to. Maybe a little bit more, but not that much more. And that calmed me down. I was like, this is cool. Like... You know, if if you were to drive from here to Galway and back, or just here to Galway, it would take two or three hours. If I was in Barcelona, it would also take me three hours to get home. So I was like, and I was. I remember having that thought and being like, oh well, this is not that scary. It's not that daunting, and therefore, home never really felt very far away. So I felt more attached to home, and it made me appreciate it more. It made me realize it was a nice place. I knew it was a nice place, but until you go and you see really shit places, then you're like, this is a really nice place. Okay, the weather's a bit shit, but like overall, yes, it still feels like home, definitely. And I think the more I traveled, the more I realized that I could come back anytime and that it never really changed. Like it changed, doesn't like it got bigger and things built and sometimes it come home and there's like random buildings that have appeared, but it's still the same. So yeah, it still feels homely. We'll come back to the topic of home, but I, I just 
want to ask you with so much time on the side of a track with vehicles that are going at such an insane speed have you ever seen something that has just blown your mind or something really really scary or really really terrifying yes uh last year in austria it was like austria is one of these tracks is like it's very fast so like i think average speed is like more than two average speed is higher than two, i think 250 or 240 kilometers an hour for 40 minutes that's high but it has like turn one is a 90 degree right hander and then a long long straight and it goes to a 90 degree right hander for turn two and there was a crash there last year that's an extremely fast place it's like by the time before they're breaking it's like 320 330 it was a massive crash there and like the thing that never comes across on TV is like the sounds, the sounds of crashes at that speed, and like the like how visceral it is and how how much energy is involved in like a bike that weighs one hundred and forty, one hundred and fifty kilos, or more than one bike that crashes at that speed. Like it's, I don't know how to describe it. It's like it's almost haunting. It's like a really weird like I don't know how to describe it and I hear things like that and you don't know in the time if someone is hurt or not and it's like a conflict of interest sometimes you see crashes and you're like what do I do like do I take pictures of this or do I not take pictures of this because one part of your brain is like well this is part of what's happening but the other time it's like well if this is something you don't want to see but you don't know at the time should I not watch has there ever been a time that you have seen something that's really disturbed you I've, I've been at races where people have been killed but I have never physically seen it I've seen people get really hurt but I've never seen someone be thankfully generally this war is pretty safe considering what what is happening and the speed involved it's remarkable how safe the tracks are how, how, how much rules and how much effort and how much money is put into everything from like helmets, suits, bikes, tracks. Like for a track to become homologated to race on, it has to go through 8,000 hoops. Uh, like there's a million things that need to be... It's still a dangerous sport, but it's nowhere near as dangerous as people would probably believe. But n- not in the sense that it's not dangerous. It is extremely dangerous. But it's not like... It's not like road racing, like TT, you know, the man, or it's not like stuff like that. It's, it's controlled danger. In the same way Formula 1 is very dangerous. It is extremely rare for someone to get killed. It does happen, but you know, in the same way, it happens on the roads. You know, it, so I think, yeah, I've seen stuff, but not nothing, nothing that's haunted me yet. But I'm aware that it can happen, and, you, and sometimes you you come a little bit desensitized to it because so little happens so often. Like so, fortunately, so few people get seriously hurt that you think it, it is safe. And that sometimes can be like a false sense of security. But the biggest thing is like if something happens, what do you do? Especially if you were near it and you hear it or see it. You're like, what do you do? I still don't know the answer to that. Cormac, I was going to ask you if you really love what you do, but I think that's fairly obvious. But what I want to know is, does this all feel normal to you yet? You know, the, the 91 flights in one year... The private planes, the hotels, the, I mean, the hours spent in airports, the hot and exotic countries. Does any of that phase you anymore? 
because you know for the average person there's a calendar countdown for the trip to the airport there's an airport outfit there's an airport agenda it's an occasion it's something exciting you know what are these things to you now yeah it's mental i mean I, it's if someone had offered like 18 year old me this one hour said it's not possible and but clearly it is uh, uh, yeah i mean it's i don't think i think i will only realize what i'm doing when i stop i think when i'm in it you know we got to 2015 and that was like the point where i was like the start of this kind of like although i started in 2012 2015 was when i was like i really clicked i was like yeah we can do this but i don't think until i fully stop i'll appreciate it because like the last three years have been like exceptionally like everything is like at, at its peak i think I'm, i mean maybe i've got more to go i hope i have more to go but like it's the highest i've been and i think i don't know i don't think i, I don't think i can grasp the scale i don't think i can grasp of like what i'm achieving until i stop and i look back at it because all the stuff i take for granted now but i don't think of it then like someone asks me and i tell them and they're like for, for simple things I mean like when we get to airports or like the first time I worked at Honda in 2019 we went to Indonesia and it was my first time to Indonesia and MotoGP in Indonesia is enormous like it is massive I think Honda sell like 80% of their bikes globally in, in Indonesia so it's enormous anyway we arrived I didn't have to do anything like I didn't have to get my bag they took our passports I didn't have to do immigration we were my hotel key was given to me when I got off the plane, and then we were brought in these cars to our hotel. I, I arrived in my room; my bag was there. I could do nothing. When we left Indonesia, I, I didn't do immigration. My passport was handed back to me with stamps in it. We were brought to the lounge, and then you get on the plane, and you turn left into the posh part, and you leave. And like at the time, you think oh, like, this is normal. But then you look back at it and I'm like, that's definitely not normal. You, 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 I, people are like, oh, what's Indonesia like? And I'm like, I think it's nice. But like, I don't know. You know, you, you, they like, they, we landed in Jakarta and then we went from Jakarta to Bandung, I think it was called. And it was like landed in Jakarta on a commercial flight, although business class. And then you're taking a private plane from Jakarta to this other city in Indonesia to do whatever we're doing. And at the time, you don't think of anything about it. You think, you start moaning about stuff. She's like, where's my bag? Like, why is my bag not here? Like, I need something from it. And you're like, you kind of catch yourself. And you're like, what are you complaining about? Like, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do nothing. So I think, to answer your question, that no, I don't think I will realize what I'm doing. I don't think I will fully understand and appreciate it until I stop. Because it's so big and so grand but in 2015, I couldn't have imagined that it would come to where it is. And that's not that long ago. This whole world seems so wild to me. Um, you know, talking to you about all of this has been really interesting because I kind of went into this interview not knowing anything about MotoGP, <clears throat> but knowing that it was, you know, a really sort of extreme and foreign world to me. And I, I, I knew it would be interesting to talk to you, but the day-to-day -day lifestyle routine that you are leading is really 
uh, intriguing to me. And I just keep thinking about the Kardashians <laughs> because um, I used to watch the Kardashians when I was younger. My dad used to kill me when he'd catch me watching them. But they had so many things taken care of for them. You know, <clears throat> their meals, their travel, their, you know, the logistics of everything. Their schedules, their workouts, their this or that. You know, now they're their own bloody empire. I can't keep up. But tell me something that happens to you on a regular basis that an average old pup like myself would never experience like so last week the first races of this year were in qatar the first two races were in qatar qatar is closed the country is closed like you can't enter qatar but so we had exemptions from the qatari government the whole of the military people championship did and it was like okay we had a lot of paperwork to fill out before for like the weeks before and etc so i left here again turn left for the posh part of the plane cool I land in Doha and literally as I walk off the like the jetway thing there's like a woman standing there with like a Moji B sign for me I'm like okay cool and they took my bag and I brought to this like again my passport's taken from me and brought through this like away from the crowds we go through this lift and brought into this room because we have to do a PCR test when we arrived so we brought to a special room did the PCR test then I went back out I went through immigration. I mean, I went through immigration, as in I walked through immigration. It was already done. My passport was stamped, etc. We didn't have to download like the health app in the country because we were exempt from this. When I walked out of immigration, they already had my bag. I was like, how do you know what my bag... How, I, I don't know how this is possible, but they, they had my bag. I was like, okay, cool. And then they obviously won't let me take the bag. So I'm walking out the airport and I get to the airport door with these like woman with the sign, this guy pushing my bag and this security guy behind me we get to the door and there's another guy with a sign with a car and they're like they don't let me put the bags in the car then we're like I'm driven to this hotel I get to the hotel and I give them my key thing as I well I gotta go and check in like normal um, yeah, like that's the most normal part of the whole thing that like we enter the hotel I checked in like normal I paid for the hotel because I still have to pay for my travel um, bags are delivered to the room and you're like when I look back even like two weeks later I'm like that's so strange but at the time I'm like like you get it's it's weird you become like desensitized to these things and you start being you start complaining that like you know the bag's delayed by five minutes are you ever worried that this style of living is having a negative effect on you I think when so in 2015 when I started to become friends with like some hyper successful people two things happen you can go I think when you when you meet really successful people I mean like exceedingly except, uh, successful people you can either try to live their lifestyle without their money that's a big problem because you'll run out pretty quickly or you can try and learn from why they're so successful like what are you doing like how are you dealing with this pressure how are you dealing with everything that's thrown to you and I tried very hard to like understand like should I be should I be excited by this thing should I be scared by this thing or this event or this success should I like how should I deal with it and I think the more 
I don't want to call myself successful yet because I don't think I feel like I'm done. But like the more, the better I get at it, the more I think that I, I, I sometimes, I am a little worried that sometimes it's like when successful people finish, what do they do? Because you don't have an outlet anymore. But at the same time, I like look at people that I know who have been extremely successful. And I'm like, okay, you're doing this. Like you, you were, as I said earlier, your ability to problem solve is exceptional. And like that's probably the thing that most people of any, particularly athletes, that they don't see. Take any athlete of any level, like tennis, golf, anything, is like the ability to take pressure and turn it into like productive energy. And it's like what I've been trying to learn how to do. Like when, when you feel daunted by something or it's scary, it's like, okay, it is scary or it is daunting, but like you doesn't mean you can't do it. And so trying to convert that into like just doing it, just just get on with it. And I think I, I think in myself that I will I believe that I will do more and I could become more successful and, and like just get better and better and better and better again not with much evidence to support i mean obviously at the longer you go on the more evidence you have to support that you can do well but still i mean like i'm 29 if i was to start a new career at 31 that wouldn't be a big deal like i'd be pretty normal um so yeah i'm probably slightly afraid of like what would i do after okay so where do you see yourself in five years i think still doing this i want to be better at it um, I don't know how yet to be better at it. Like I'm still, because it's quite a weird thing. Like I, I want to be better. I just need to work out what, I, particularly what I can be better at. Um, but yeah, like it's, like I said, 2015 was like the turning point, and then 16 was a big year, 17 was a big year, 18 was like really big, and then 19, 20, 21 were like so far the peak. Um. Mm. Well, Cormac, it's definitely been interesting talking to you and listening to a very foreign world, to me at least, and hearing about the ins and outs of MotoGP, but hearing you talk about how you got to where you are today has been really, really interesting. So thank you for taking the time out to talk to me, and thank you for being on the Nosy Fox podcast. Mm-hmm.